welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and co-author of the book, A Life of the Land, Connecticut's Jewish Farmers, to explore the story of Connecticut's Jewish farmers in the last century. Surprised that there were Jewish farmers? Many people are, but scores of newly arrived Jewish immigrants were assisted in making their lives in poultry and dairy farming throughout the state. Some farms developed into resorts, catering to vacationing urbanites, seeking a bigotry-free, relaxing vacation in the countryside. Hi, it's Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. I'm working from home under Connecticut's Stay Home, Stay Safe initiative. So let's dive into the story of Connecticut's Jewish farmers. Never buy a farm in a hurry. Never buy a farm unless you have capital enough to keep you the first year. Not every Jew is a farmer. Don't think of buying a farm if your wife does not like farm life. Guide to the United States for the Jewish Immigrant, published in both English and Yiddish by the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1912. Connecticut's Jewish farmers have been thought of really as a novelty since they began to arrive in the 1890s. Who ever heard of Jewish farmers? Jews typically aren't associated with farming and certainly not with successful farming. Forbidden from owning land in Russia and Russian-occupied countries, Jews still came to America with some agricultural skills gained through cattle dealing, tenant farming, or raising cows, goats, and chickens. But in Connecticut, Jewish farmers pioneered the adoption of foodstuffs such as eggs, milk, and broilers that could be raised on worn-out, rocky New England soil. After all, rocks are known as Connecticut potatoes. Tobacco cultivation was also a proven moneymaker. Large-scale use of scientifically designed chicken coops, the Jewish farm agent, the Jewish farm newspaper, and Jewish farmers' cooperative all became highly visible and successful aspects of Jewish farming in Connecticut. Formed by the Jewish Agricultural Society in 1911, the Farmers' Credit Union in Fairfield, Connecticut, was among the first to create a model that was used across the country. Why Connecticut? By the 1880s, Connecticut had already received waves of immigrants from Ireland and Germany. German Jews had successfully petitioned the state legislature in 1843 to amend the state constitution to permit public worship by Jews and quickly form congregations in the state's larger cities. But everything changed for the state's Jewish community beginning in the 1880s. An immigrant generally has some resources— money to buy transportation tickets and food, family connections in the new country, and an established ethnic community to join. A refugee has nothing, no money, no connections, no one looking out for him, and most significantly, absolutely nothing and nowhere to return to. Alarmed by the plight of refugees pouring into Western Europe, wealthy Western European Jews undertook relief efforts. The Baron de Hirsch, born in 1831, was a wealthy German Jew and philanthropist. He founded the Baron de Hirsch Fund in Germany. An industrialist and a builder of railroads, Baron de Hirsch constructed the railroad that carried the Orient Express to Istanbul. 
As part of a lifetime of philanthropy to needy Jews throughout Europe and the world, he set up the Baron de Hirsch Fund in the United States in 1891 to provide practical assistance to immigrant Jews fleeing Eastern European pogroms. Programs organized raids on Jewish communities that included killings and the destruction of property were condoned by civil authorities. The Jewish back-to-the-land movement stressed the redemptive nature of farm life. This was a cornerstone in the Baron de Hirsch's philosophy and a strong element in the mission of the fund. Persecuted for two centuries under Russian rule, Eastern European Jews began emigrating to the United States in droves in the 1880s. Between 1881 and 1924, over two and a half million Jews arrived in America, the overwhelming bulk of them either directly or indirectly from Eastern Europe. German Jews who had arrived in America in the 1840s and had had some measure of success worried about the high number of Eastern European Jews living in crowded, filthy conditions in a tiny area on the Lower East Side of New York City. They also worried that these impoverished Jews, with their foreign language, dress, diet, and customs would arouse virulent anti-Semitism in America. These sentiments helped to drive the charitable impulse to move Jews out of the city to America's small towns and countryside. Jews were sent to be farmers in rural Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, as well as to far-flung places with picturesque names such as Bad Axe, Michigan, or Painted Woods, North Dakota. But what was Connecticut's interest in these international events, and how did it affect farming in the state? As early as 1880, the Hartford Daily Current reported, The North German Lloyds have engaged to convey 3,000 Romanian Jews to New York before the end of the present year. The immigrants are sick of their own country and have been enabled to seek fresh homes across the Atlantic by their co-religionists. Their patrons provide funds not only for passage, but for the purchase of homes and farms in America. It's noteworthy that in this early article, the purchase of farms is already mentioned. A brief notice entitled The Russian Refugees appeared in the Hartford Daily Current on June 28, 1882. The committee of the local Russian aid society, engaged in the relief of the Russian Jew refugees in the city, issue a card asking assistance from the public. Money may be sent to the current office and will be duly acknowledged in these columns, or assistance may be given by procuring employment. Hartford has received large numbers of the refugees. Work has been found for 200 in factories and on farms, and others arriving daily. In a lengthy article appearing two weeks later, a member of the Hartford Russian Aid Society was interviewed. He related, These unfortunate people of the Jewish faith who have been robbed of their property and driven from home by the brutal bigotry of Russian mobs. During February and March, the local society received about 200 of these refugees, through the General Committee of the Society in New York, but since the 1st of June, the immigrants have come directly to Hartford, chiefly from the Mansion House Committee of Liverpool. Among their number are students, tradesmen, and skilled artisans of nearly every class, watchmakers, optical instrument makers, mechanics, tailors, etc., as well as farmers. They are strictly sober in their habits and industrious. They look to agricultural pursuits for the winning of prosperity, which they so desire. Naturally enough, Many of them, when first placed on New England farms, vigorously objected to working on Saturdays and eating meat not slaughtered in accordance with the Jewish rites. When asked whether these Russian Jews expect to abide permanently in this country or return to their native land hereafter, the gentlemen of the committee replied that they had come for good. The Russian Jews are now among us and looking chiefly to agricultural pursuits. 
The first specifically agricultural efforts of the fund in the United States were directed toward revitalizing floundering Jewish farm colonies in New Jersey. The fund purchased a 5,300-acre tract in Woodbine for America's first long-term Jewish agro-industrial community. In 1894, the Baron de Hirsch Agricultural College was established in nearby Vinland, New Jersey. Future Connecticut farmers numbered among its graduates. In the United States, the fund devoted significant financial resources to the Jewish Agricultural and Industrial Aid Society founded in 1900, later renamed the Jewish Agricultural Society in 1922. The four stated objectives of the JAS were as followed. One, the encouragement and direction of agriculture among Jews in America and the removal of those working in crowded metropolitan sections to agricultural and industrial districts. Two, the grant of loans to mechanics, artisans, and tradesmen to increase their earning capacity and to enable them to acquire homes in suburban, agricultural, and industrial districts. Three, the removal of industries now pursued in congested districts by aiding manufacturers and contractors to transfer their industries outside the large cities. And last, the encouragement of cooperative creameries and factories and enterprises for canning and preserving fruits and vegetables. After 1907, the JAS abandoned efforts to move industries out of urban areas and concentrated on farming. The JAS participated in efforts to help Jews move out of the big cities, notably New York, and onto farms. But they wrote, It must not be assumed that every Jewish immigrant can become a farmer or even that those who claim to have been farmers abroad are fit to take up this work in this country. But we find that the percentage of success can be increased, first by careful selection of the persons to be assisted, second by the selection of suitable localities, irrespective of the first cost of the land, third by continuous supervision of the progress of the farmer, and by proper liberality when the occasion arises. The JAS rejected loan and mortgage applications from the applicant who had less than $400 to $1,200 in capital. In 1908, the JAS revamped its assistance program to include four innovative pilot programs that would prove themselves as essential building blocks in really the success of Jewish farmers. The four included the introduction of the Extension Department, which was responsible for a network of paid Yiddish-speaking Jewish farm agents, the Employment Bureau that placed Jews on working farms for wages and to gain agricultural experience, agricultural education scholarships for the American-born farm children, and the publication of the Jewish Farmer Farm Magazine. The JAS felt strongly that periodic visits to individual farmers by Yiddish-speaking agricultural experts would allow for instruction on the best farming methods, lectures on agricultural subjects, and the organization of farmers' associations. Historian Ken Lebo from Jewett City remembers, Yiddish-speaking agents, like Mr. Benjamin Miller, visited our farm regularly to keep my father informed of the latest developments in the poultry industry and to offer advice while drinking a glass of tea. To my father, an isolated Jew in a strange land, this custom meant a lot. In addition to the direct assistance provided by the Jewish farm agent, the publication of a monthly farming magazine both in Yiddish, the Yiddish farmer, and English helped farmers with basic information. Advertised as the first Yiddish farm magazine in the world, a claim probably not open to dispute, 
the Jewish farmer often reprinted illustrations with English captions from other farming journals. Many common farm vocabulary words did not have a Yiddish translation, so the English word was used but sometimes written in Yiddish. Originally published just in Yiddish, English text was added over the years. The magazine helped to explain very pragmatic, very simple farm techniques, such as how to stack hay to new, non-English-speaking Jewish farmers, and it helped to relieve the loneliness of farm life. It also encouraged the English-speaking children of Jewish farmers to take advantage of all agricultural education offered by the state's agricultural college and extension service. After 1908, Farm agents of the JAS provided mortgages to Jewish immigrants, helping them locate and purchase farms appropriate in size and type to the individual farmers' needs and skills. Almost all of the refugees had to adopt to a new culture, climate, and occupation. The farm agents often helped them to obtain farms that featured not only a house and barns, but household furnishings and farm equipment. Farm wagons, cars, and trucks are often cited in the deeds. When some of the old Yankee farms were auctioned off and the Jews bought them, they did not pay a whole lot, recalled Zeke Leverant of Colchester. I remember back in the 20s, a family bought 25 acres, 7 cows, and 20 chickens for $3,800. In granting mortgages, the JAS often wrote into the deed stern stipulations that the farmer was required to follow. It included some of the following directives. Keep the property insured against fire. Occupy the premises, reside there. Commit no waste thereon. Engage in no change in ownership. Keep the buildings in sanitary condition. Cultivate the farm and pay the taxes. In exchange, the JAS agreed to take a second or third position among creditors. One deed in Columbia gave the farmer $1,200 for 150 acres of land with buildings in Columbia and Hebron that was already encumbered with a first mortgage of $2,100 and a lien of $1,900. The schedule of payments of principal called for an amount of $150 annually from 1924 to 1927, and $200 annually thereafter, and interest at 5%. Bad debts were hard for the JAS to collect, but the Hartford Current reported the following story in 1923. The Jewish Agricultural Society, Inc. of New York was given foreclosure judgment to recover 3565 from Jacob Fine due on a mortgage on a farm in Thompsonville by Judge Malleable in the Supreme Court yesterday. It was claimed that Fine had not paid anything on the mortgage since he bought the farm over a year ago and that the aid society had been forced to pay the taxes and other bills. All farmers live close to the edge economically, but Jewish farmers could be especially hard hit by any misfortune. An article in the Hartford Daily Current in 1900 relates a sad story from Salem, Connecticut, entitled The Hard Lot of a Struggling Farmer. Abram Goldstein whose house was burned one night last week, is reported to have lost in the fire a large sum of money which he had borrowed in order to build a new house. The family had narrow escapes themselves. Goldstein, who is a Russian Jew, has had a hard time in the last few years to get a living and interest from one of the most barren farms in the state. By thrift and economy, he managed to rise above adversity, provide for his family, and get ahead a little. It is a hard blow to him to be cleaned out of all his furniture and clothing, which it has taken him years to attain. Initially, beginning in the 1890s, Jewish farmers continued the type of subsistence farming practiced in the state 
in which the farmer grew crops principally for his family's consumption and sold any extra. But in the 1920s, as the consumer demand for eggs, milk, and poultry grew, specialization became much more profitable than subsistence farming. In 1911, the Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven discovered vitamin A in whole milk. Mothers were encouraged to include cow's milk in their children's diets. The University of Connecticut at Stores displayed scientifically designed chicken coops in 1918. These and other modern scientific farming methods were continually published in the Jewish farmer. Jewish farmers were very progressive and quick to adopt these new practices. Jews did very well in the poultry industry, not only as farmers, but often as feed suppliers and chicken dealers, carting chickens to wholesalers and retailers who were often also Jewish. Connecticut's Jewish farmers had no ready-made Jewish farming community to step into. They lived close enough to towns like Norwich, New London, Willimantic, and Colchester, where they could subsidize their farm income by working as tailors, shoemakers, or butchers, trades brought over from the old country. The New London Day in 1891 reported on some of the garment industry piecework being done in the tiny farming community of Chesterfield. In one house, the manufacturer of suspenders will be found at full blast. In another, coats are made, and in the next, a veritable beehive. Old and young are making pants. How wide a range their industries cover, no one knows. But they keep scratching, and no one knows where they will ultimately grow to. It is a revelation to some of the old settlers here, who find themselves plotting in the way their ancestors beat out years and years ago, to see foreigners come in and turn their hands so steadily to various industries. Farmers had to keep their faith. Synagogues were not permitted by law in Connecticut until 1843. In that year, the Connecticut General Assembly enacted a chapter of the Connecticut General Statutes, reading in part, quote, that Jews who may desire to unite and form religious societies shall have the same rights, power, and privileges which are given to Christians of every denomination, unquote. Jews that settled in the Connecticut countryside at the end of the 19th century were on their own in constructing a Jewish life for themselves and their families in an overwhelmingly Gentile environment. Evidence of the Jewish faith of the farm families emerged in the buildings of worship in these rural communities, some of which are still standing. Country synagogues are found today in Columbia, East Haddam, Ellington, Hebron, Lisbon, and Newtown. Two are known to have received construction loans from the Baron de Hirsch Fund in Chesterfield and Ellington. There were undoubtedly more. Some may still be standing converted to other uses. Others have been lost, including the earliest known example in Chesterfield, lost to a fire in 1975. The typical frame historic Connecticut country synagogue building was constructed as a consequence of the wave of immigration from Eastern Europe from the 1880s to 1924. Invariably built for an Orthodox congregation, traditional religious practice required three things that affected the building. The first forbids riding on the Sabbath. In the country, this observance kept to a low figure the number of families who could belong to a congregation. The second requires a minion, a quorum of 10 adult males required for the establishment of a congregation and the recitation of certain parts of the service. And the third, pursuant to standard Orthodox practice, seats women separately from men. 
Normally, such separate seating is in galleries, but in small country synagogues where there could be no gallery or balcony, a separate section for women's seating exists, often divided by a curtain. Before, as well as after World War II, when there was a resumption of Jews fleeing Europe, some of them found their way to these country locations. Their arrival increased the membership of the congregations, prompting the need for larger buildings. In Hebron, these historic forces came together in a new synagogue building constructed in 1940 for Congregation Aguda Sachim. Aguda Sachim in Hebron is an unusual country synagogue because of its late date, because of its masonry construction, and because of its high style. The designer builder was a member of the congregation, Ira Charles Tertian, who had a strong interest in design and in fact briefly attended design school. His Art Deco uh, building for Aguda Sakim is unique among historic synagogue buildings. Its step massing and planar surfaces make it a good example of the Art Deco style. On the interior, original murals of landscapes and buildings of the east of the Holy Land are also unusual, perhaps unique. In Colombia, Aguda Sakim was built in 1927 and then enlarged in 1951 when Jews who had fled after the Second War came to Colombia. The synagogue was built by seven or eight farm families who donated the land, labor, and trees for the lumber. The bima and the ark are located in the apse. Lions of Judah flank a decalogue while the internal light is suspended over the bima. These motifs are repeated in the ark curtain. The decalogue is surmounted by a crown representing the Torah's divine power and inspiration. Anchi Israel in Lisbon, located just west of Jewish City, is the archetypical country synagogue, built in 1936 by about a dozen families who wished to walk to services in order to follow the Orthodox Jewish practice. It is a beautiful, small frame building that can be easily mistaken for a one-room schoolhouse if not for the Magen David affixed to the tower over the entrance. Now owned by the town of Lisbon and recently restored by the Lisbon Historical Society, its simple massing, Central Tower and Eve Returns are features of the colonial revival style, very New England. The top of the ark is surmounted by a pair of doves carved by a member of the congregation that symbolize peace. In Ellington, there's a well-proportioned colonial revival building, Knesset's Israel Synagogue. Pursuant to standard Orthodox practice, women are seated separately at Knesset's Israel. A separate section for women's seating exists divided by a low wall and formerly by a curtain as well, from the main area which is centered on the Ark and Bema. The only known example of a country synagogue found in western Connecticut is in Newtown. Addis Israel Synagogue was built in 1919. Associated with Russian Jews, the land for the synagogue was deeded to the congregation in 1914 by Israel Nevesky. The parcel was part of a larger farm owned by Nevesky, other Jewish farmers lived along Huntington Road, giving rise to the nickname of Little Palestine for the neighborhood. Summer visitors from New York also attended services. Farming was not the only thing that took place on Jewish-run farms. Providing lodging for Jewish summer guests became a common way for Jewish farmers to make ends meet. Farm families found themselves catering to fellow Jews drawn by the promise of fresh food prepared in kosher kitchens with synagogues to worship in, and a respite from the smoldering summers in New York City tenements. The host farmers could be counted on to uphold Jewish dietary laws. The services of shukats, ritual slaughterers, 
were obtained for preparing fowl, and by the 1920s, kosher butcher shops could be found in small country communities such as Colchester. Without air conditioning, summer in New York was stifling. In about 1925, reporter Isabel Foster described the summer influx of Jews to Colchester in central Connecticut in an area known as the Connecticut Catskills. In the summer, the population jumps to 10,000 because of the summer visitors from the tenements of New York. Those who do not like to see a dignified and quiet old town turned into a resort for city workers should soften their hearts by spending a hot week in August sleeping in a courtroom on the Upper East Side of New York. It will then be a matter of rejoicing to them that these poor people can get away to the green country for a few weeks. They will look with delight into the sheds labeled Banquet Hall, where a long table and two benches serve as the only furniture and at the hammocks hung in the rundown apple orchard, even at the noisy groups who gather in the town's little stores. A cook Elaine, literally cook for yourself, arrangement was typical. This meant that guests cooked their own food in the farm kitchen or in a summer kitchen set up in another building. The farmer would profit not only by receiving weekly rent, but by selling fresh ingredients to the guests. The farm family would move out of their bedrooms and into the barn. Farm boarding houses that provided meals as well as rooms were less common, but Pinkish Schwartzberg's advertisement for the Elm Farmhouse in Mansfield calls the farm a first-class summer place with an elegant summer garden, fresh butter, milk, and eggs every day, and fine spring water. Unlike today's famous fat farms, spas that promise guests that they'll lose weight during their stay, Connecticut's early 20th century Jewish farm hosts prided themselves on putting weight on their city guests. The Elm Farmhouse boarders traveled by train from Grand Central Station to Willimannock to be picked up by farm wagon, or they took the Chelsea boat to Norwich and continued by car, presumably streetcar, to their destination. Food was essential to the Jewish identity. Quote, my mother in the early days milked cows by hand, and you have to remember she cooked everything we ate. Nothing bought was ever made. She made farmer's cheese that hung on a line outside. She worked very hard, unquote, relates Eastern Connecticut Jewish farmer Harvey Polinsky. Saul Mindel described his parents' accommodation for boarders. Quote, there were several bungalows. One was originally an ice house. One was originally a chicken coop. The city of Norwich disposed of their trolley cars, and we were able to obtain one and turn it into a bungalow. Saul Kayetik remembered, My mother charged $18 a week for room and board. That was very reasonable. For the rumor, it was $80 for the whole season. Farm guests stayed in farmhouses. Some places eventually turned into resorts. Resort buildings included boarding houses, cottages, hotels, bungalows, and camps that often offered waterfront recreation, dining halls, and nightly entertainment. More than 30 of these small resorts were identified in, in a research report entitled Back to the Land. Famous Jewish entertainers such as Zero Mostel, a cousin of Jack Banner who built Banner Lodge in 1934 on the site of his family's farm in Mudas, traveled the Borscht Belt, a tour circuit that included venues in New York, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut during the summer to perform at these family-oriented resorts. In 1936, Sam and Irma Arnson stayed at the Banner Lodge. They wrote the following postcard to their parents in Brooklyn. 
Since Irma wrote last, she had chicken six times. We played indoor baseball, tennis, and I went swimming yesterday. This morning, we took a six-mile walk, which knocked your daughter out so that she will probably take a nap in the afternoon before rowing before supper. Then we will walk to the village. More tomorrow. Regards and love, Sam and Irma. The banners also use postcards to get more visitors, even mid-season. In July 1955, the Banner Lodge sent a handwritten postcard to a former guest from New Jersey that reads, While our sports activities are at their best this year, we thought you'd be interested to know that we have added, for those of you who are inclined to relax, plenty of chaise lounges around our Olympic pool, plus a modernistic outdoor stage for afternoon dance fests and music siestas. Whether you want to play or relax, your choice is here. And in August of 1964, a postcard from the Banner family reads, Wish you were here, having a wonderful time. You can too by making reservations now for either guest staff reunion week in August or Labor Day and Rosh Hashanah holidays. Many of these resorts survive and are now youth camps or religious retreat houses. Making a success of it. Not surprisingly, many Jewish farmers did not make it. Economic panic, depression, and collapse of farm prices occurred with regularity every decade and a half. As early as the 1860s, many Yankee farmers had given up farming for mill work or moved west for more productive land. But many of Connecticut's Jewish farmers did make it. In a newspaper article with the headline, Jewish Farmers Prosper in Connecticut, Living Down Their Reputation as Mere Middlemen Who Do No Labor, they have shown they can till the soil and make it pay. Reporter Isabel Foster credited the JAS and its sponsored farmers for their commercial success and literally creating something out of nothing. In the book, The History of the Baron de Hirschfund, The Americanization of the Jewish Immigrant, first published in 1935 and commissioned by the trustees of the Baron de Hirschfund, the foreword states, Since the foundation of the Baron de Hirschfund in 1891, the trustees have blazed a hereto unexplored trail. They have made many mistakes. Whatever has been successful in the work of the fund will speak for itself. While it is true that some strategies or tactics tried by the fund may not have been as successful as the trustees would have liked, the astonishing fact is that a significant international effort was made to stem immense hardship and deprivation among Eastern European Jews. New, creative, untried-before efforts attempted to help a destitute people find a new home, country, and life without sacrificing their religion. What is surprising is not that some of the programs failed, but that so many succeeded. What are the factors that contributed to the success of those Jewish farmers who thrived in Connecticut? In some cases, it was just good luck. A good location with close proximity to urban areas, including Hartford, New Haven, New London, Norwich, and Willimantic, that provided demand for fresh eggs, milk, meat, and produce, or non-food stuffs like tobacco, and afforded access to trolley, truck, and train transportation. Important nutritional discoveries like milk's vitamin A and the development of sanitary, scientifically designed farm buildings benefited all farmers. The help of the Connecticut Agricultural College at Storrs, where the first Jewish student was admitted in 1898, and the State Department of Agriculture and their farm agents ended farmers' isolation and kept them informed. But Jewish farmers also had a powerful ally. The JAS, with its own farm agents, farm publications in Yiddish as well as English, 
and perhaps most importantly, money to lend, often as a second or third mortgage. These essentials all supported the individual farm family's own ingenuity and business savvy in turning a worn-out Yankee farm into a flourishing dairy or poultry farm, or a summer resort, or after World War II, an agribusiness. The full story of the impact of Jewish farmers in Connecticut is just coming to light. The lives of the earliest arrivals in the 1890s and the post-World War II immigrants both need extensive research before their unique role in the state's agricultural history is fully revealed. For more information or to order a copy of my book, A Life of the Land, Connecticut's Jewish Farmers, go to the website of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks for listening. To read more about Connecticut's Jewish farmers, go to the Connecticut Explored website to read Hebrew Tillers of the Soil from the Spring 2006 issue and the Connecticut Catskills in our Summer 2018 issue. Both articles are online. To order Ms. Donahue's book, A Life of the Land, Connecticut's Jewish Farmers, go to the website of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. It features the voices of Moira O'Sullivan and Patrick O'Sullivan. Music by Newtown Kletzmer. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored by back issues and collections, including a make-your-own collection at a special price at ctexplored.org. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.